American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. As the new post-bellum railroads connected the country together, bringing all those new resources from the West and all the cotton from the South, they also created the first national organizations, the first national connections between workers all across the country. People were connected. They actually moved with the trains around the country, seeing workers all across the different railroads. They actually could speak, well, not speak, of course, but communicate through the telegraph wires that now sprawled everywhere that the railroad went. At the same time, these railroads were extraordinarily precarious enterprises. Vast sums had been spent to lay all that iron across the country, all of that steel. Railroads very frequently went bankrupt because to cover all those costs was difficult, especially when there was competition. And so even as the railroads boomed, wages were cut and cut and cut over those decades of the 1860s and the 1870s. All of this comes to a head in what is called the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, the very first moment when there is a burgeoning of an, a consciousness about workers and capital of labor and capital, of wage workers and capital in America. These strikes were frequent. They happened every year, every two years. They flared up, and they were pushed down by militias or uh, by the corporations themselves. This particular railroad strike didn't look any different than any other strike at the time. But it began in a place that could only exist when you have a network of railroads, two miles west of Baltimore at a junction through all the westbound trains that would travel through there, a choke point in this network that allowed, at that point, to shut down, shutting down all the places that were connected. The size and scale of the railroad, the connectedness of the railroad, was also its Achilles heel. It was also the thing that could bring it down. If you controlled a choke point in this network, you controlled the entire system. The strike began on the Baltimore, Ohio Railroad two miles west of Baltimore, and it quickly spread along the rail to West Virginia. Now, the company that controlled this, the B&O, they wanted just to replace the workers. There were other people who could run the trains instead. And at first, this was possible. They brought in replacement workers that were called scabs to run the trains instead. But as this process began, people began to think of themselves less as replacement workers than as fellow workers. The best way to understand this is the story of 28-year-old William Vandegrift, who stood across the tracks in Martinsburg, West Virginia, trying to stop a train that was operated by replacement workers. As the train was coming out, he stood there trying to stop it, only to be shot three times by militiamen. His arm had to be amputated, and he died nine, year, nine days later, leaving behind a pregnant wife with no one to look after her no way to earn money. After, after this incident, the B&O found it harder to find replacement workers. It was very difficult to convince them that it was OK to shoot their friends, to shoot fellow members of their community, to shoot people that would, but for the grace of God, be them. 
The Baltimore Sun described this willingness to use guns on Americans as the, quote, arrogance of capital. This was the recognition that there was a fundamental schism occurring in the second industrial revolution, in this moment when there was so much inequality, so much violence to protect property, to protect railroads, to protect those relationships between wage workers and owners. The Baltimore Sun described the workers as famished and wild and declared for starvation rather than to have their people work for reduced wages. Better to starve outright, they say, than to die by slow starvation. One railroad worker explained the sympathy of Baltimore citizenry. They know what it is to bring up a family on 90 cents a day, to live on beans and cornmeal week in and week out, to run in debt at the stores until you cannot get trusted any longer, to see the wife breaking down under privation and stress, and the children growing up sharp and fierce like wolves day after day because they don't get enough to eat. But the relationship between the, the workers and the owners was not private. It was mediated always by the state. The state was always willing to intervene militarily with militias to suppress strikes in this period. The governor of West Virginia called upon President Hayes to, quote, suppress this insurrection. And so the president ordered federal troops to all along the lines of the BNO, starting in Baltimore, moving west, to stop this insurrection of the workers, to protect private property. Using the army to defend property looked very similar to using the army to suppress the South after the Civil War. And in fact, the same troops that were moved along the rails to maintain federal control during Reconstruction that were removed from the South also in 1877 were the same troops that were now used to occupy the railroad lines and rail depots to keep the workers from their rebellion. After the news of this spread, there were uprisings everywhere that not just the B&O went, but all railroads across the country, spreading across the many states. But even in Baltimore, where the strike had begun, those federal troops, now armed with artillery, were sent to protect the rail depot in Baltimore, that great port city. The bells that were to bring the different militias to, aug to aug act as auxiliaries to the army rung out at exactly the wrong time. The bells rang out at exactly when all of the Baltimore's factories and workers got off work. So instead of going home, they went to where the strike was happening. They went to protest the use of the army to intervene in private economic affairs, in their view. The workers in Baltimore and their uh, communities pulled out cobblestones from the street, throwing them at the army, who then shot into the crowd. This use of the army was central then in this new relationship of capital and labor. Everywhere that there were strikes along the railroads, whether on the Baltimore and Ohio or in the Pennsylvania Railroad or any of the other railroads in America, the army was used to put down the strikes. Armed militias bayoneted groups of people in Pittsburgh. But it was more than that. It was also special train cars outfitted with Gatling guns that were used to reconquer Pennsylvania along the lines running from east to west, retaking Altoona, Reading, and Pittsburgh. Similar stories could be talked about all across the country, New York, Ohio, 
even in Missouri, St. Louis even had a very brief general strike that overthrew all production in that town, creating what is called the St. Louis General Strike. Now, this is only a few years after the famous Paris Commune. And so this can be seen as a truly radical moment in American history, the flowering of a national consciousness with thousands of people going out, tens of thousands of people going out on strike all across the country, all at once, in an unorganized fashion. But it was that very lack of organization that eventually led to the strike's demise. Unorganized people cannot stand up to the organized power of the military, especially when it has Gatling guns. In the aftermath of the Great Strike, armories were set up in every major city in America to maintain this possibility of retaking it, doing urban pacification, using the state military and the federal army troops. It was only the military that had stood between the uprising and a general disruption of private property, of railroads all across the country. The Great Strike of 1877 marks a new chapter, the, the movement from Reconstruction, which was predominantly about the reconstruction of the economy after the end of slavery, into a new chapter of the Second Industrial Revolution, when the primary question is that new relationship between labor and capital. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm -hmm.